Thank you, uh, Pastor Henry, for those words. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, before we dive into the word today, I do want to thank Pastor Henry, uh, Roger, and the elders here. Uh, you guys have been, and even everyone here, uh, we're, my wife and I have been welcomed and greeted warmly by each and every one of you, or most of you, uh, over the weekend. Uh, yesterday, I had the privilege to to be grilled by our elders, or by the elders here, and it's, it was a great time. Uh, evidence that it went okay is the fact that I'm here today, so I'm, I'm glad to be able to be here to, to study God's word with you. With that said, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to read from Philippians 3, 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conform, conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and this morning for us to sing and worship you. And Lord, we ask that in all things that we do, uh, the things that we do in this life, the thing that we um, anticipate and long for, the most is to be with you. And I pray the Lord that as we study this text that it will allow us to do so. Do so. Uh, open our hearts and our minds to your word today. In your son's precious name, amen. You may be seated. Florence Chadwick was a born, a natural swimmer. She was born in San Diego, and if there's anything you know about San Diego is that they have a lot of sun and a lot of beaches. And Florence Chadwick loved to swim. Uh, she swam, she loved to swim so much that she actually competed her first race when she was only six years old. She was destined for swimming greatness. And she wanted to be the first woman to attempt to swim 21 miles around the Catalina Islands. And that's a, these little islands in Southern California. And on July 4th, 1952, she attempted that. It was a difficult weather. The, the water, the ocean was cold, the waves were harsh, and there was thick fog on, on that day. Uh, it was the, th the fog was so thick that the boats that were following her, just to make sure she doesn't drown, uh, had a hard time seeing her. And not only that, but there were sharks uh, around the water. Uh, the, the boats, the guys were on the boats behind her would actually have the rifles ready to see if there's any sharks and would shoot uh, into the water so, so that Florence wouldn't be eaten. And she went during daybreak and she swam for hours and hours and hours, but the fog never lifted and the water never got warmer. The waves were still rough and the sharks were still around. At the time, most Americans watched this event on television, and, but she kept swimming and swimming. So for 15 hours, she swam and she swam. And around the 15 hour mark, is when she began to have doubt. That's when she started questioning her ability, whether or not she can even finish this course. At 15 hours and 55 minutes, she called out to the boat behind her and asked to be uh, taken out of the water and into the boat. She gave up, and when she gave up, the people on the boat told her how close she was to the shore. If she swam just a few more minutes, just a few more miles, she would have made it to the shore. And when she was asked why she gave up, it wasn't because of the 
the cold water or the waves or even the sharks. But the thing that, that, that made her quit was the fog. The fog impaired her vision. It kept her from seeing the shore. And in her mind, she felt like she wasn't going anywhere. She felt as she was just paddling along. She wasn't moving because of how thick the fog was. Now, I wonder how many of us here today feel that way when it comes to our own spiritual walk. Uh, many of us are struggling to, to remain faithful and to live for the Lord. And oftentimes, Scripture describes our walk with Christ as a course, as a race. First uh, Corinthians 9.24 tells us, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Second Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Scripture describes life as a course, and this course, especially in this life, being a Christian is not easy. It is especially hard in the Bay Area. We are in a place where we're really, we're like in the future right here in the Bay Area. All the things that happen or all the cultural shifts happen here in the Bay. So in a lot of ways, persecution will come here before it goes anywhere else in the United States. For some of us, uh, the trials come in the form of a fog of doubt, where it, can where, where it comes from our peers that are constantly jeering and insulting us because we profess to be believers. Others, uh, you guys are enduring barraging waves of temptation, trying to overwhelm you and drown you with this lust that ultimately leads to death. For some, it may be the, the looming threats of sharks, people in your life that are just waiting for you to, to talk about marriage and, and, and traditional marriage. And when those moments come, they want to devour you. Others are the cold from abandonment because of your identification with Christ, because you claim that you want to be followers of Christ, but you're abandoned by your friends and family. For some, it may be, for some of you, it may be just one of them, or, and for others, it may be all. But we are all called by Christ, and we're given the ability to endure. We're given the ability to persevere in this life. And it is during these times of persecution that we need encouragement. And in fact, I know some of you might not be under persecution now, but I promise you that those times will come. So whether you are under enduring persecution now or you're preparing for it, Paul teaches us in this passage on how we can look forward to heaven, how we can fix our eyes in this heavenly uh, destination that will go in the future. So how can we keep our minds focused on Christ so that we can finish this race strong? How can we continue to live in this life so that we can reach the finish line, so we can be in the heavenly shores? Well, this text will show us. Before we begin, I want to go through the context of the book of Philippians. Philippians was a precious, precious church to Paul. He established this church, and uh, this letter, uh, the, the letter, the book of Philippians, is really a, a thank you letter to all of the church members that were faithful to him and coming alongside him to provide money and food when, while he was in prison. Uh, this book was written while he was in prison in Rome. In chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, we see how he's thankful for them, for the ministry and their participation. And in chapter 1, verse 12 to 20, he talks about the how the gospel cannot be in prison. Even though Paul himself was in prison, the gospel will continue to be spread throughout the world. Uh, he, he, he even talks about how there were people that 
that taught the gospel not out of a love for the lost, but out of selfish gain. But Paul is thankful for the fact that, there are, that the gospel is being proclaimed to the, to the ends of the earth. At the end of chapter 1, he talks about the joys of living in Christ. Verse 21, this famous verse, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul, the dilemma is whether to stay in this world to serve the church, which is great, or to die and to be with the Lord. And for him, it's a win-win situation. Chapter 2, we begin to see the humility of Christ, uh, how Christ, the infinite God, became a man and humbled himself in obedience to the Lord. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He was faithful to the Lord, even to the point of dying on the cross. And when we go down chapter 2, we will notice that uh, Jesus, who deserved to be worshipped and loved and praised, yeah, he deserved these things, and even though he was persecuted for it, he did not grumble and complain. Yet for us sinners, we are people that need, need that are constantly living in sin, and yet if we call, call, profess to be Christ followers, there's no reason why we should complain, because we're to look to Jesus. If Jesus, who was treated poorly, who, who doesn't deserve to be treated poorly, uh, do, did not complain during his time here, how much should we not complain when we deserve the horrible treatments? And Paul continues to go on. In verse, chapter 2, verse 15 and 18, he says, if you, when you don't complain, when you don't grumble, when you live uh, without, this, without grumble and complain, you become a light to the world. The world sees you and they'll notice that there's something unique about you. And chapter 2 ends by really showing us two people, two faithful servants in the church, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was the one who, who sent the, this letter or the package that Philippians uh, made for Paul. Uh, he's one that went and he almost died serving Paul and the church. Uh, but by God's grace, he was able to live and bring this letter back to the Philippian church. And when we get to chapter 3, when we get to this portion of the text, Paul is warning them about false teachers. Chapter 3, verse 2, notice it says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. There were people that were coming, that, that after Paul left, that were, coming, that were coming into the church that would teach them that the only way for you to be saved is through circumcision. It was no longer by the grace of God, but by works. And these were Jewish people that, that boasted on the things that they have. And Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a, the, like the super Jew. He, he followed the law. He did everything. But he counted all those things as lost because of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Paul then speaks of how he himself is not perfect and that he's still striving to follow the Lord, verse 12 to 16. So when we get to verse 17, Paul instructs the church to follow men like him, people that are faithful, that are following the Lord, and are pursuing Christ. In verse 18 and 19, there's a, he talks about those that who are enemies of the cross, people who are enemies of Christ who's their, whose end is destruction. So when we get to this passage today, when we get to this portion of scripture today, Paul is trying to encourage the believers on how they are to, to look towards this heavenly citizenship, to encourage them to continue to, to live for Christ. Paul warned, wants to guard the church from false teaching that may sway him, sway the church from from living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and to end the race strong. There are people then and there are people now in our day that will try to do the same, to try to draw us away from Christ. The, uh, these people that are in the church, 
there are people in this church that are struggling. I'm sure there are some people that are struggling now, or if you just watch news, you know that the persecution is coming. And Paul wants to remind them and us three reminders so that we can reach this heavenly shore. He wants to show us three truths that we can dwell on in this life so that we can finish the race strong, which will be our outline today. Three truths uh, to remind ourselves in light of the cold waters, in light of the thick fog, in light of the powerful waves, in light of the dangerous sharks. Three truths we need to remember so that we can finish the race strong. Our three points, our outline today would be first, our destination, two, the prize, and three, future glory. First, the destination, heaven. Look at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. Notice the word for here is intended. It, Paul put that there as a way to contrast those that are in, living in the world and those who are living for Christ. Uh, this contrast uh, to verse 18 and 19. Notice of verse 18. For many walk, walk, of whom I often told you, now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Notice that he's comparing the people here that are living for earthly things to those who are following in obedience to the Lord. So there are people that are positive, Paul and the faithful believers, and there are negative, people who are living for the world, and then positive again. Uh, and in this case, the positive is our citizenship in Christ. This word citizen only appears here in the entire New Testament. And the idea, and when he wrote this word, when Paul put this word here, the, the Philippian church understood exactly what he, they, what he meant. Because the Philippian church, they were proud citizenship of Rome. They spoke their language, they, were, they dressed like them, and they loved the Roman culture. Uh, Philippian, the Philippi church was an outpost of Rome. And usually the, the church of Philippi would, would wait, from, uh, wait for, for, for instruction from the capital, that is Rome. Interestingly enough, the Philippian church was also waiting for instructions from Paul, who was imprisoned in Rome. Paul reminds them that even though they are proud of their earthly kingdom, of their earthly citizenship, there should be a greater pride in the fact that they are a heavenly citizenship, that they are heavenly citizens. There are some people that you know who love being Americans. They're patriotic in the way that they, they act and the way that they behave. Uh, there's a little side note about me. I love McDonald's. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest restaurants in the world. But particularly, I love McDonald's that are not in America, like, like uh, McDonald's in other countries. For some reason, the McDonald's in other countries, their food just tastes better. Uh, one year, my cousin, my brother and I, we were all in China, and uh, we, we went to a McDonald's to just try all the food, and uh, we thought, well, the, you know, the American dollar, the Chinese dollar is like one to eight, so we could order a whole bunch of food. And uh, we went there, and we ordered five times as much as an average Chinese person. Like, we looked like them, we dressed like them, we spoke Chinese, but you can tell by the fact that we, by the way that we order food and the way that we ate the food, that we're not from there. You know, we ordered like, like 80 chicken nuggets and nine burgers and, and four fries and like a whole bunch of drinks. Not just myself, you know, that's just <laughs> me. They made a whole bunch of money that day, but they knew just by the fact that we we're eating so much that, okay, clearly you are American. Like you, you, you Americans love McDonald's. You guys are eating as if, you, as if you've never seen this before. And it was true, yeah, we, we love our food and uh, you can tell that we were Americans based on the fact that we ate different from the, from the people that are there. In a much more grander sense, 
we should live and act differently from the world. Yes, you speak their language. Yes, you may dress like them. Yes, you may have, be in the same culture, but there should be a difference in the way that you act in, in, in the world. Again, if you contrast verse 18 and 19, the people that are living in the world, their appetite is, is their flesh, and it's the things that cater to their own sinful desires. If there's no difference in the way that you act, if there's no difference in the way that you live and the way the world lives, there should be a concern. You need to ask yourself, am I in love with the things of the world? Do I delight in the things that are in this world? Or do I, look, do I delight in things that are heavenly? Do I respond in life circumstances the way that people in the world respond? Do I cherish the things in the world the way that the world cherishes? Our lives must be different from the world. Not only should we live differently, but our, we should view our lives differently. We should think about our, our life differently. And being citizens of heaven, there are certain benefits. There are benefits in being uh, a believer in Christ. And Paul wants to convey that there are, even though there are perks of being a worldly citizen, there are even greater perks of being a heavenly citizen. In light of the trials, in light of our faith in this life, in light of the trials for our faith in this life, we need to dwell on our destination. We need to dwell on heaven. Heaven is our true home. Heaven is where we truly belong. We need to remember that because we are citizens of heaven, there are certain privileges and benefits. First, we are a child of God. We belong to God. Uh, we are, we are, we, we're no longer separated from the Lord. We're made right with God, and, we, and the Lord sees us as ch- his children. We're free from the condemnation and the consequences of sin. And these benefits should cause us to be filled with joy. We should be excited knowing that we are made right and with the Lord. We're reconciled with the eternal God. We have something better than anything that this world has to offer. Another benefit that we have is that we are free from participating in sin. We are free from the consequences of sins, and we're also free from being enslaved to sin. We're free to live in such a way that's pleasing to the Lord that will bring joy in our life but give glory to God. So when, you, when you're suffering through turmoils in this life, when you're being persecuted for your faith, remember your citizenship. Remember that your final destination is heaven. Our hope is not in this world. And our view of scripture may have the world think of us as un-American. Uh, we might be laughed at and taunted for our faith. But no matter how much benefit you lose, in this, no matter how much benefit you lose as an American citizen, you will not lose any benefits as a heavenly citizenship. We belong to Christ. Heaven is where we belong. Heaven is a lovely place. It is a place where there's no pain, no tears, no, no more physical ailments, no more stress, no more loss. The scripture tells us that every tear will be wiped away. But the greatest of all benefits, the greatest thing is that our faith will become sight. We will see Jesus for who he is. We could finally see him. We could finally be with him. We love him, but we, we don't know what it's like to, to dwell with him. And when we get to heaven, we get to experience that. We get to be with Jesus, which leads to our next point. In light of the tides of persecution, the fear of doubt, the coldness from our surroundings, and the, the, and the, the threats of sharks and in in the people in our lives, we want to focus and remember not only our destination, but also our prize. We want to remember the prize. 
Verse 20, uh, continue verse 20. From which we eagerly wait for Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the word, eagerly wait for. It's, it means highly anticipate. It's a really strong word. It's emphatic. It means to anticipate with eagerness. You're looking towards something with anticipation. You want to be there. It's in, this is in the present tense. It means it's ongoing. You know, you were, we're not just excited for Christ when we're here on Sunday or when we go to Bible study or small group. It's an ongoing thing. It's something that happens every single day. We should constantly be anticipating and waiting for our Savior. We should be longing for our Savior every single day. 1 Corinthians 1.7 reads, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10. For, for things themselves report, report about us, what kind of a reception we had with you, and how we turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven. There are two types of waiting in this life. There is one in the negative. Uh, it's the one that's filled with begrudge, hopelessness, and tiresome. Uh, you might have experienced this when you're waiting in line at the DMV. It's, it's, you know, it feels like an eternity there as they call your one number after another. It's just this, you're waiting, like you know it's going to end, but it, it's terrible. It's a horrible place, and you, don't want, you just want to just get out of it here. And on positive, there's the excitement. It's like Christmas, you know, the night before Christmas when a child would go to bed and then and they know the next day they'll get to open gifts and eat candy and all of that. And they look at the clock, it's 12, and then they go back to sleep, they wake up and then look at the clock again and it's 12.01. And, you know, there's this joy, there's this anticipation that every moment seems like eternity, but it's, it's a joyful type of uh, anticipation for what is to come. For the Christian, we, we have a positive type of anticipation for Christ. We look forward to the day where we can be with the Lord. We're excited by the fact that every day that passes means that we're closer and closer to being with Christ. You cannot have this type of joy and excitement if you do not see Jesus as your greatest prize. If Jesus is not the, the prize in your life, if Jesus is not the one that you love the most, then being with him would not be the greatest desire in your heart. So let me ask you, what type of weight do you have when you think about Jesus? How, when you think about Christ, are you, in, are you eagerly anticipating him? Is it in the positive or in the negative? Do you see Christ as the prize or hindrance for, for any worldly sinful pleasures? Are you happy that Jesus will come in the future? Or are you, are you, are you wishing that he just wait a little longer so you can get that promotion or, or get married or do whatever worldly thing that you can do? What, are, you, are you looking to Jesus? Are you praying regularly that Christ will return so that you can behold the greatness of our Savior? What type of anticipation do you have for our Lord? If you profess Christ and Jesus is not your greatest delight, then something is off. Not that you can't enjoy the things of life, not that you can't enjoy things like marriage or promotion or work or anything like that, but that if that is your greatest desire, if that is your greatest hope in this life, you will be disappointed. We are called to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. You cannot serve two masters. The throne in your heart is only has one seat. And if Jesus is not there, then, you're, then it's idolizing. You're putting something else above Christ, and that is going to disappoint you 
in, in time. That's why if the world is trying to offer you something better, when the world is saying, hey, there's something greater, you, you should leave this Christian faith for this, you know that they're giving you a lie because the greatest thing that we have is a relationship with our Lord. We have Christ. If the world tries to offer you something better, we know that it can't be because there is nothing better. Jesus is the absolute best. Notice it says that we wait for Jesus. Jesus is what the Christians long for most. So how can we cultivate this in our heart? How do we cultivate this in our, in our daily lives so that we can continue to grow and love our Savior? Well, I'll give you maybe three suggestions here. It's, it's not exhaustive, but here's just three that, that I think about that can help me, and I'm sure it will encourage you guys as well, to continue to live and love our Savior. First, grow in Christ-likeness. Grow in Christ-likeness. The more people in the church are more like Christ, the more they want to be with Christ. When you and other Christians put off sin and put on Christ, and you're more Christ-like, you will long for Christ even more. How can that be? Well, think about it. The more, as you grow as a Christian, you show glimmers of who our Savior is. When you put off the things of the world and put on Christ, you get a, you get a, a, a little sweet taste of who, what being with Jesus is like. Christ is revealed in Scripture, and we can know him through it, but we don't know what it's like to, to live among him. We don't have a, a experiential knowledge of being with Christ. So as you grow in your Christ-likeness, and, and as every one of us here grow and love the Lord, we show each other what is like, what would it be like if our Savior was here. You get a teaser of what it's like to be with our Savior. As the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit matures you and others, you'll be more and more like our Savior. Second Corinthians 3.18 reads this, For we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You will see what being like Christ is like when other people in your life are growing and as you are maturing in the faith. If you think that other Christians are kind, Christ is much, much more. If you think your spouse is loving, Christ much more. If you think your parents are comforting, Christ much more. I mean, we get to see glimmers of Christ when we, when each and every single one of us repents of our sins and live in such a way that reflects who he is. The more you purge personal sin, the sweeter the fellowship will be. And that sweet fellowship is it, it's, it's only a foretaste of the, of the greatest fellowship that we have in Christ in the future. Next, prayer. Prayer is a way in which we commune with God. We, we let our petitions know. We, we, we speak to the Lord through prayer. We ask him for things. We, we, we're thankful for things. We pray for other people. Uh, communion is a way in which we, we're to, we commune with the Lord. Ephesians 6.18 and 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to, to pray without ceasing and, and, and to pray all the time. Uh, prayer is not just something that you do before you eat a meal, but it's something that you do regularly. It's is constantly communion and thinking and dwelling uh, about the Lord. And you're constantly showing your reliance and dependence, dependency on him. Next, uh, the third way we can cultivate a heart for Christ is, is through singing, is through worship. Uh, singing helps us remind us of the prize that we have the Lord. 
I love the fact that uh, the worship here is exalts, they sing songs that exalt our Savior, that, that elevates Jesus Christ and to point us to the heavenly hope that we have. Uh, the songs that we sing, good songs. I mean, we have a book in the Bible called the Psalms, which is it's just 150 different types of psalms that highlight uh, the, our Lord. It, it talks about times when we need to depend on him, times when we need to turn from sin. Just These are just types of uh, ways in which we can learn more and meditate on Christ. Some of the greatest hymns that we, we sing are during times when there's persecution. And it's oftentimes when there's persecution where, where the temporal turns on us, when the things of the world are... Is, is, it, makes, it becomes a burden that we, we look towards heaven. We sing to remind us of these future realities. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 tells us that we need to sing songs and spiritual hymns. Uh, we, we make songs for, for that reason. There's why, that's why we sing during Sunday worship, so that we could be remember, so that we could remember our future Savior and the, and the glories and the joys we have with him. So how does holiness communing with God and singing to him make us long for him? Well, we will do all of these things in heaven. We'll be holy people fellowshipping with the Lord and singing praises to him. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that there will be singing and angels will be singing. There will be singing in heaven. Uh, church is a foretaste of what that is like. When we're, when we're gathering here together today, when we gather here on Sundays or Fridays, whenever we're around together, this is a foretaste of what it's like in heaven where we get to fellowship with the Lord, where we get to sing praises to him, and we can honor him with all that we do. Jesus is our prize. And the more engaged we are in the church, the more of a taste we get of what heaven will be like. Not only are we called to remember our destination and the prize, in light of persecution, but we're also called to remember the future glory, which is our last point, future glory. Look at verse 21. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. When we struggle with pain, when we struggle with persecution, when we struggle with doubts and temptation of the world, we understand as Christians that is temporal. These are just temporal struggles. But one day when we have our glorified body, when we are with our Savior, when we're face-to-face when we're -face with him, we'll have a glorified body where all of those things will be gone. Notice Paul says that we will be transferred from our humble state into conforming with the body of his glory. Uh, we will be completely changed. One day we'll have perfect bodies that will not be marred by the effects of sin. We will be free from pain, doubt, and temptation. And this is what we call glorification, is when you have a glorified body, when you are, you are what you're supposed to be if the fall had not happened. You would be completely transformed into this humble, broken body to this glorified body. Our destination is, is, is heaven, but our bodies are not suitable for heaven unless it's transformed, unless there's transformation that takes place. Our temple, temporal bodies will perish but our glorified body will last forever. And we will get these bodies, just, uh, we'll, get a, we'll get these bodies once we see our Savior. Our humble body is described as humble because of sin. And how can that be? Well, there's obviously physical and mental limitations. You know, your physical limitations, you get weaker. Uh, you, you no longer 
uh, are able to do the same things that you've done before. Uh, I understand there was a marathon this morning and some of you guys trained for it. You understand that uh, you train for this because if you skip a week or if you don't train, then you won't be able to finish these type of races. There are physical limitations. We get older. Uh, things don't function the way that it used to as we were younger. There are mental limitations as well. We forget things. Um, you know, we forget where we place our car keys. We forget uh, our children's names. We forget things uh, because, because of the effects of sin. But the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate humiliation for us is death because it is the end of life. The glorified bodies will not have any physical limitations. It will not have any mental limitations. And it, will not have any, it, it will not die. It will not perish. For Christians, we know that there are two ways to receive this body, either through death or the rapture. Uh, either the Lord comes and takes us or, or he returns and then we get, we get uh, taken up into the air. We will be glorified one day, though. One, this, this is our future. This is what we will have in the future. And Christ did the reverse of this. In Philippians 2, uh, uh, Paul talks about the, the kenosis theory, where the infinite God became a finite man, and he, and he, he, he endured the temporalness of our, of our physical bodies. Yet he, al he also demonstrated to us what it's like not just to live in this life, but when he died and he rose again, he showed us what it was like, what a glorified body looks like. So we get to see uh, what a perfect life is and what a glorified body will be in the life of Christ. So how does God do this? How does Christ do this? Notice it says, by the exertion of the power that he, that he has, even subject all things to himself. The power that Christ has to, to hold all things together, uh, all, of, all of nature, all of reality together, that power that Christ has, that power that Christ holds, is what is going to use what he's going to use to change us from our humble state to our glory glorified state. The power of Christ demonstrated through nature will cause us to worship him. The power of Christ when he as he transforms our body, as we know that he will do in the future, it should give us hope. It should give us absolute hope in this life. It is a sad reality of Genesis 3 world that everything deteriorates. Our bodies will break down. The world will tell you that you can, you can, you can just do these type of exercises. You can eat a certain type of diet or have a certain lifestyle so you can enjoy this world longer, so you can be here longer. But Paul mentioned this in, uh, in, in Philippians 1, where to, die is Christ and, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, he understood that reality, that if he was able to live any longer, if he was here at any, any extended period of time, he's able to serve God, which is great. But if he was to die, he gets to be with Jesus, and that is better. That is better than having to be in this world. The world will try their best to try to sway you to love the things of this world by trying to preserve your bodies in this world. But we understand that over time, no matter how much science improves, no matter how much new lifestyle or, work, or workout or diet, whatever it may be, your body will break down. Anytime the world, even our own selfish flesh, tempts us to deny the faith and lose hope, we must remember uh, the hope that we have in the future, specifically our glorified bodies. If Again, if you're not suffering now through aging, you will at one point. Just look around you. There are people that are more wrinkly than you, uh, and there are people that are older, and you will get to that point eventually. You cannot stop aging or your body from deteriorating. The comfort that we have as Christians is knowing that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if our bodies deteriorate because one day 
we will have a glorified body free from the effects of sin. Florence Chadwick uh, would eventually go on the swimming course again. And two months later, she did. And uh, it was the same type of conditions. There were still the waves, the water, the sharks. Everything was there. Um, it was still there. But she was able to finish the race the second time. And when the, and when the reporters asked her, what did you do differently? You know, every, everything was the same. Did you train differently? Did you eat differently? What did you do differently? And she responded, she had a mental picture of the shoreline. So even though she couldn't see, she knew where she was going. If an earthly athlete can do that, how much more should we as Christians? We need to remember and constantly remind ourselves of the heavenly destination, our, glorified, our greatest prize in Jesus Christ, and our future glorified bodies. Life uh, will try to make you forget this truth, but we need to constantly look to Scripture and look to what the God's Word has to say about the joys that we have in the future, and in the, in the heavenlies, and not in the present world. We will find joy in Christ and what he promises in the future. So my question is this, are you a heavenly citizen? Are you a citizen of this heavenly kingdom? If so, then you know that our, the heaven, we get heavenly rewards as we are faithfully serving one another. We get rewarded for those things in the future that we'll get uh, rewards that will not perish. Uh, and you know, Christ even promised us in John 14, 3, that he's preparing a place for us. But again, ultimately, the greatest joy is that we can be with our Savior, and we can anticipate that with absolute joy. But if you're not a citizen of heaven, if you're a lover of this world, if you're a citizen of this world, God is preparing a place for you too. Every time when you're sinning against him, he, it's building up wrath, it's building up his wrath, and he has a charge against you. Every sin you commit, he will pour that wrath onto you. He will make a body for you that will not perish, but he'll make a body for you that, that, that will endure the wrath, uh, his wrath for all of eternity. And you'll spend all of eternity enduring God's wrath. And the only way for you to become a, a citizen of heaven is not to trust in your own works, is not to love the things of the world, but to repent, to turn aside from the, the joys and the lusts of this world, but to, to look to Jesus Christ and to, and to place your complete faith in him. Jesus Christ came, the infinite God, came into this earth, virgin born, and he lived, he lived this humble state. He, he knew what it was like to, to feel pain. He knew what it was like to weep. He knew what it was like to get hungry. He knew what it was like to, to see his body deteriorate. But yet, even though he lived this perfect life perfectly, he did not sin. You know, we, our bodies deteriorate, but every single time we lust after someone, every time we were angry, these are all grave offense to the Lord. Yet Christ himself did not fall into any temptation, fall into any sin. Yet when he died on the cross for us, when he was nailed to the cross, he endured the wrath that was meant for us. And if we turn away from our own self-righteousness, our own works, and our own, or anything from this world, and place our faith and identity in Christ and Christ alone, and we trust in him and his work in this life, his death and resurrection, we will be a citizen of, this, of, this, of, this, of heaven. And I would, I would implore you, I would plead with you, people who do not know Christ today, to, to understand that your citizenship of this world, your love for this world will perish. And don't be like the people, don't be like the world where it will perish because you will perish as well. 
And I pray that for the people that hear who know Christ to rejoice and look forward to the hope that we have and people who do not know the Lord to turn from their earthly desires and place their faith and love in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, we ask you that as we go about our weeks, uh, that we can not be swayed by the temptations of the world, to not be uh, allured by the lies of the world, but to look to you and to find our greatest pleasure and joy in you alone. And Lord, I ask if there are anyone here who do not know you, that you will humble their hearts, uh, cause them to, to fear, knowing that at this moment that they, have, they are not reconciled to you. I pray, Lord, that you can humble the hearts so that they can know you and be in a right relationship with you. Uh, thank you for this time we have to study your word. In your son's precious name.